Hello everyone and welcome back to another Delta Green Operation Review. I am your host, Nate, lost in time and space, and I am joined with my fellow co-host. I'm Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. And today we are going to be looking at a, I think a first for us. This is going to be the first full campaign review of Delta Green. We're going to be taking a look at Iconoclast, written by Adam Scott Glancy. Oh yeah, this is this is one of the few Delta Green, like, full campaigns that are offered with the current iteration of Delta Green. And we have this and Impossible Landscapes, I believe, are the two. That currently, as of the recording of this video, those are the only two full campaigns available for Delta Green. Everything else has been released as a kind of individual scenarios for the game. This one is a longer kind of storyline that can that can expand into a, a long-term campaign that could even last up to a year, I would say, of, of gameplay. But before we get into the review itself, we first want to thank Arc Dream Publishing for sending us a copy of this Operation 2 review and that we will be spoiling major details of this campaign throughout this review series. So players, send your handler this way, and we will see you all in our future episodes. Vase, you had wanted to talk about Scott Glancy and his history with Delta Green. Adam Scott Glancy was one of the founders of Delta Green, along with John Scott Tynes and Dennis Detwiller. This is back when Delta Green was just a kind of expansion for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. These guys lived in a house together, and they have so many crazy stories. We talked about uh, some of them with Dennis Detwiller when we interviewed him, but they, they just had a crazy fun time together just writing stuff for role-playing games. And Scott Glancy uh, brings a lot to the table to Delta Green. He he is a government guy. He worked for the government, and so he kind of comes from that world, whereas the other guys are more from like a writing and gaming background and things like that. Adam Scott Glancy brings that element to it, and it, it kind of helped flesh out the more realistic aspects of Delta Green, which I think is one of the things that really speak to me with the game. So he definitely deserves a lot of credit for that kind of stuff. Uh, Adam Scott Glancy also is one of the best storytellers I've ever met. He I met him at the Lovecraft Film Festival, and this guy can tell a story better than anyone I've, <laughs> I've ever talked to. He... He just knows how to weave stories and make things sound interesting. So he's a really interesting individual. But with all that said, even though he was one of the founding members of Delta Green, he really hasn't written much or none of the things that we've reviewed have had his hand in it. It's been mostly Dennis Detwiller and Shane Ivey. Iconoclast itself is a project that he's been working on for years. And it took a while. And I know he took some breaks because he was involved in so many other projects, including a Delta Green movie. He actually intended to make a movie, a little short film, to present at film festivals that actually was a Delta Green story. Uh, one of the first scenarios published for the new Delta Green was going to become uh, an actual little short film. But even though that project never came to fruition, this one did. And Iconoclast is something that um, I've been waiting for because when I talked to him a few years ago, it seemed really interesting, the concept of having kind of a prologue to a scenario that then would be used to provide more information for the rest of the scenario. And we'll, I'll, if that confuses people, you'll understand in just a few minutes when we get into the re review proper. I think it's important to know his background. 
so that uh, people understand when they're reading through this scenario, there's a lot of information regarding uh, real world uh, war and military stuff, specifically in the Middle East. And a lot of it is real stuff that he saw or that he had access to when he worked for the government. These are things that are not made up. They're not things that are that are presented in a book. I know a lot of people sometimes have problems with depicting extremists in, in books, especially in games and things, because they feel that it, it may not be done in a sensitive fashion. Most of the information presented here in terms of that aspect of the scenario come from real world experience from Adam Scott Glancy. And I think he presents it in a way that is respectful and is clear that it's not judgmental or taking a side in, in any way, shape or form. It's more coming from the view of War is just bad for everyone, and no one involved has clean hands. I do think that Delta Green in general does a really good job of handling those uh, touchy subjects. I, I briefly wanted to go over like the layout of the book and our initial impressions when we kind of just flipped through it, right? What are some What are some things that you liked or didn't care for so much? I always love the art in the book. You know, when you flip through the book and you see all these little various snippets of artwork that Dennis does and the, the general layout of the book is really nice. There's a lot of great handouts that are kind of scattered throughout the book itself. But the, the one gripe I have is that the information itself feels very scattered. When you kind of read through some of the initial notes about various topics that are presented in the the Mosul chapter, it'll tell you to reference another part of the book, and then you go to reference that part of the book, and it tells you to reference another part of the book, and you, you do a lot of page flipping to find the information that you want. Yeah, I you know, I agree with you. Uh, first, uh, touching on the art, like you mentioned, it's fantastic. There's some artwork, I think, I, I don't know if it's artwork or real photos, but I think there's, like on page four, there's a photograph of just destroyed buildings that's just very chilling to look at. And I, I believe that's an actual photo that, that Adam Scott Glancy took while, while he was over there, but I'm, I'm not 100%. It doesn't really give credit in the book, but um, the actual art artwork, painted artwork is fantastic. And this, this type of inclusion into Delta Green is, to me, very horrific. I think the artwork just adds to that. Uh, to me, this is one of the most terrifying scenarios that I've read for Delta Green, at least the the overarching setting and, and all that combining terrorism with eldritch horrors is just bringing together two things that are really scary. <laughs> the artwork is fantastic. As you said, the layout, I agree with you. There's a little bit of, um, I'm going to use the word messiness, although I, I think that's too harsh of a word. It's just a maybe slightly disorganized in terms of where things are laid out. I think it, the book could have benefited from, more a little bit more tidiness in the organization my my biggest criticism about the layout is just there's so much information given to the handler as exposition and a lot of it doesn't feel like it really matters yeah in a sense like at least when you're first reading it because you don't know what the player's goals are until like almost f like 60 pages into the book like, it, it takes you, like, 70 pages to get into the first operation of the book proper. And, you know, by that point, you've read so much other information that it's hard to keep track of, like, the ties between 
what the players are doing and all this stuff kind of happening on the outside. Yeah, you know, I think that goes back to like being an expert in something or having training in something and knowing how to dial it back. I once wrote a short story. It's It was a Lovecraftian horror story where there was a detective that was tracking down this serial killer that ended up being like some guy that was possessed. But when I first wrote it, I put way too much information regarding the forensic procedures. To me, it was interesting because I knew that stuff. And I thought it'd be interesting for people who weren't familiar with it, how the actual processes work. But when my brother read it so he can edit it for me, he's like, you need to remove like a bunch of this. And it took away like several pages of the story because I just went too far with it, you know? So I think maybe that's where it boils down to. Like he has all this information in his head and he's just like, here it is. <laughs> you know, It's nice. It's nice to see some of this stuff. I mean, it's, I was in intrigued and captivated, but as far as planning ahead to run this, it's more information than I needed. I think I would have preferred to have the information start after I've read some of the operation and know kind of the general consensus, like what the players are supposed to be doing. Yeah, the Molzo um, chapter, which is the first the first chapter which you're talking about, is pretty much a setting chapter. If you if you played like other role playing games, you know that certain role playing games will introduce a setting to a campaign, and then you'll have to describe the city and the things, the population, the, you know, all the other all the little minor things. First chapter is a lot of what's going on between, you know, the war that's still happening, uh, the struggles between ISIS or ISIL and and a couple of the other like Shia and, and or Shiite and, uh, and and that kind of stuff. So it definitely kind of goes a little too detailed into that. It's again, it's interesting as far as understanding what world these characters are going to be in. But with that said, I mean, it's it really drives the point home that this place that where the story takes place is a very hostile environment that is war torn and uh, facing kind of an identity crisis. There are struggles between different groups of, um, for lack of a better world, word, iconoclasts, and it sets the tone for what exactly players are going to expect. Yeah, this initial setting reminded me of an operation that we have reviewed, Kaligati, a little bit, where that, that operation also takes place in the Middle East, and the players are tasked with finding another agent. This campaign has a much different premise to it that we'll, we'll get into shortly, but Aside from all the various demographic information, it goes into ISIL, which is sort of the main antagonistic force uh, that the players will initially encounter in the campaign proper. In the prologue operation that we'll talk about in a bit here, the players take on the role of ISIL, uh, ISIL informants. But going on into the second portion of the chapter, it talks about the main unnatural threat that occurs throughout the course of the campaign, and that is the Father of War, who is one of the many masks of Nyarlathotep. It originally came from a prehistoric tribe through through ritual sacrifice where they would make knives and arrowheads and things like that from obsidian, and they would use the obsidian to kill people and sacrifice them to this god. Nyarlathotep sort of infused its essence into these little chips of obsidian, and it eventually grew into what is now called the Father of War. 
Yeah, and the father of war is brutal. And I, I like that they incorporated Nyarlathotep into this because he is, he is the, of all the great old ones um, or elder beings, basically the one that interferes most with humanity and their conflicts and things like that. Most of the other godlike beings are very uncaring about the world of man. But Nyarlathotep, for whatever reason, seems a little bit more interested in that and kind of thrives in suffering and destruction. Uh, so this this mask of Nyarlathotep is brutal. I mean, the, what it does, basically, it it is a cloud of these obsidian chips. When it decides it wants to kill someone, it flays them alive by just... With death by a thousand cuts, basically. It just skins them alive. Yeah, I, I also like that Naralathotep is the, the mythos being of choice as a sort of meta callback to Delta Green's origins being sort of an excuse to introduce agents into masks of Naralathotep, the campaign. And I, I, I think it would be kind of interesting if players played through masks and the Keeper... I went through the extra work of like kind of introducing this idea of the father of war. Oh yeah. And then almost a hundred years later, you play this campaign kind of following up on that, like decades later. I think that'd be really cool. Oh yeah. Like a, like a tale spanning centuries or something, huh? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that idea. It's interesting. I, I'm intrigued by the, by the idea of this story. It's, it's definitely something unique, I feel. Nyarlathotep is one of the most popular great old ones, and for good reason. I mean, he just he's so unique and interesting and easier to kind of understand than some of the other great old ones. Yeah, yeah. Nyarlathotep's motivations seem much more grounded. I think some people might criticize the choice of Nyarlathotep. I know some people kind of feel like he's overused, or it's overused for that reason, because it's so easy to adapt. But I, I personally don't think that's the case. I think it's very well implemented in, in this in this operation. I agree. I mean, a, a story like this, I think, what, what else are you going to use? You know what I mean? Like, it, it has to be directly involved in manipulating people. If it were any other great old one, how could you possibly do that and involve them in it? Or if you make up your own great old one, which is certainly a possibility... You run the risk of having too many great old ones that are directly putting their hands into humanity. And I think that takes away from the uniqueness of Nyarlathotep because no other great old one is like that. But if you if you start making up your own that are that are similar and try to manipulate people and things like that, then it becomes like, oh, how many of these are there? You know? <laughs> and, and now we're talking like comic book supervillains versus you know, just this one being that is happens to involve himself. But um, yeah, in, in addition to to this father of war, we're also given in this chapter, in the setting chapter, a massive timeline of events. And <laughs> it spans, I think, like 10 pages. Uh, let's see, counting them up, it spans 12 pages, yeah. To be, to be fair, one of those pages is a map and an image, but... Still, it's a long timeline. It goes over like half a year's worth of events. Yeah, it's not quite as long as the timeline provided in the Handler's Guide because that's an overarching history of humanity. Uh, but this one, this one is definitely up there in length. Uh, again, 
I think maybe it could have used a little trimming down. Uh, and I think, again, it, it boils down to all this information that Adam Scott Glancy knows that he wanted to share in this in this scenario, but maybe wasn't as necessary. These are the kind of things that people, if they're more interested, they can do their own research. For example, like there's he what what he does in this part, he intertwines real world events and throws in some fictional events in there. Kind of how the handler's guide does it, right? In their timeline, in their massive timeline chapter. And there are some really crazy things that happened that I didn't know about that are real atrocities that that were committed in Mosul and other things that were affected by the war once Saddam Hussein was taken out of power. A lot of it is is interesting information. But again, if you're running the scenario, it's information that may not necessarily be required in order to run this and can bog down preparation for a scenario. For me, I found the timeline to be confusing because the the fictional events are denoted in italics, but for the first like three pages or so, it none of it involves the player characters. It kind of comes off like, well, if they're fictional, then it doesn't happen, but it does like all these things actually happen. They're just not they're not a part of the real world, so to speak. I think it can be kind of confusing at first. And then when you get to the point where the players are actually involved, then there's all these other fictional events and you have to be like, oh, right. Okay. Well, this could potentially happen depending on what the players decide to do. And then you kind of have to keep all of that like in mind. And then my other biggest criticism about the timeline is that there's so many names and abbreviations that get dropped throughout it that it can be really confusing to keep track of everything yeah it it definitely doesn't help that we're not used to seeing some of these names and words you may go over a couple times just to kind of get a grasp of it i understand why why they did it i understand why they put this large timeline in here this this adventure is very open-ended and as we get to the later chapters there are a lot of different directions that this can be taken both by the handler and the agents like it can be expanded to have field agents as well as office agents and there could be large investigations and and that kind of thing going on or you can make it nice and tight where it's just the main events that occur so you can expand it as much as you want what i briefly mentioned in the beginning of this review you can make this a year-long campaign or not so this timeline helps in terms of making the world feel alive. So when the agents are doing stuff or investigating things or looking deeper into a particular event that you maybe thought they weren't going to look into, at least you have some guidelines. Like if they're looking, okay, we're looking into the disappearance of a family, uh, see what happened if maybe this has to do with this father of war. And so they visit the location where this family is missing. Well, at least you know, you know, kind of what happened in the back end. So you can have a place to start in terms of feeding the agents information of what they find when they're looking into these things. I get why they did it. I really do. Yeah, I I, I understand that too, but I, I think this chapter would have really benefited from a, like a dramatis person A sort of brief briefing of sort of the important names that you're going to be reading because a lot of the names are, they're, kind of briefly mentioned throughout various parts that you read throughout the first like 20 or so pages. But then it just kind of quickly flops back and forth between all these names and these entities that it can be really hard to keep track of. Definitely keep good notes when you when you read through the timeline to kind of keep 
keep straight of who exactly they're talking about and where they're talking about. And and another thing I would note too is keep track of the moon because the the timeline makes a lot of notes about the phases of the moon throughout the various uh, events that go on. And all of the slaughters of the father of war all happen on the new moon. So that's, that's definitely something to emphasize throughout the course of the campaign when you're running it. Yeah. And let, don't tell that to the players, let them figure it out. Cause they'll feel really cool when they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> if they, if they, if they make that connection. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't spell it out right for them, but definitely like, Always kind of keep it in the player, like the back of the player's mind. Like always mention, you know, when, when the players go outside at night, mention what phase the moon is in. Is it waxing? Is it waning? And, you know, as the moon gets to the new moon, maybe you can have sort of tensions rise within the players. Maybe have sort of this like feeling of anxiety continue to rise within them, you know. Uh, like that aspect I really like about the timeline. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, I put in my notes here, uh, I do like the inclusion of a timeline of events. I wish it wasn't so robust, but I do like that it adds realism. It makes the scenario feel like things are happening, whether the agents do anything or not. So I wish that more scenarios, not just Delta Green, but for other games, had timeline of events like that because it really helps to flesh out a setting you know, if you know that other things are occurring and the players have the potential to interact with those events or they might miss out on it, but they'll learn about those events. So I do like that that that's a thing. Yeah, I think that the timeline is definitely it's one of those resources in this book that you're going to come back to again and again and again. And for me, it's like that's that's the biggest reason why I wish it was kind of laid out a little better It's because there's so much good information in here that it feels like when you're first reading through it, that you're just like, all right, get to the point already. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of how I felt when I was reading it. One thing that I briefly thought we could talk about, you mentioned it when we were before we started recording, is the outlaws. Um, don't want to go too deep into that, but very few Delta Green scenarios involve the outlaws. And in this one, it's interesting because they actually cross paths with the program. And I can't, off the top of my head, think of a scenario that does that. Usually they'll be like, oh, if your player's kind of a sidebar, like most scenarios assume the players are part of the program. And then there'll be a sidebar saying, oh, if, if you're playing a campaign as the outlaws, then maybe do things this way, you know, but it's usually a very brief, like not even a full page of information. Uh, this one doesn't do that per se. It just involves the two groups and they kind of come head to head with each other, which is also adds a, an interesting dynamic to the scenario. Yeah, yeah, without going into too much detail, um, I do think it's worth mentioning Tariq Muhammad Rassam because the the, the beginning Mosul chapter spends a, a good couple of pages going over who this person is and their, their ties to the operation proper. Tariq Muhammad Rassam is the man who finds the throne of blood. And sim simply, the Throne of Blood is, uh, it's an amphora that has an Elder Sign stopper on top of it that contains the Father of War inside of it. I didn't know what an amphora was. It's, <laughs> for those who are like me that don't know what that is, It's it looks kind of like a vase, but it's large, right? Like, it's like a, it's got a very long pointed bottom, basically. Yeah, it it kind of reminds me of like a carafe almost with like a handle on it. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's got handles usually. Yeah. And Tariq 
was a former Delta Green friendly during World War II, and he continued to hunt the natural, the unnatural on his own after his uh, his time in World War II. And eventually he comes to find this, uh, this artifact called the Throne of Blood, and this event is essentially what kicks off the course of the campaign, is that he finds this and he attempts to get it out of Mosul because he fears that um, ISIL will will get involved and they'll try to take the artifact or destroy it or, you know, use it in some way. So he tries to make contact with Delta Green and him being ignorant of the split of Delta Green during the 70s, he contacts the outlaws and the outlaws make a plan to try to uh, extract the artifact out of Mosul. Yeah, and... He had made a bomb shelter back, way back. He was authorized by ISIS at the time to build a bomb shelter in case of a U.S. Uh, military strike or whatever, you know. So he was authorized to make a bomb shelter under his house. And then Saddam Hussein happened, you know, that whole thing with Saddam Hussein happened and there was a change of power. So he thought this all was forgotten about. And he was able to use this bomb shelter that he built to store all these artifacts that he had been collecting throughout his years and fighting the unknown or the um, the unnatural and that's where he's storing the amphora is in this bomb shelter below his house unfortunately isil did have information about him getting off authorization from isis back in the day to build this bomb shelter so they themselves also are sending in some people to kind of look into this bomb shelter to see if there's any strategic use or or capability for this bomb shelter nowadays. And in addition to that, they've heard rumors that he has been collecting uh, idols and things like that that are uh, out against the law, against the ISIL dictates. And so they're sending some people in. He has contacted Delta Green outlaws and they're coming in to extract the thing. But they're, they're kind of unfortunately a little too late because the ISIL team is going to arrive at his house the night before Delta Green Outlaws are supposed to arrive and pick up the Amphora. And that is where the prologue of the campaign kicks off, is that night where the ISIL team goes and invades Tariq's house. And that is where the players get to take on the temporary role of the ISIL team going in to basically make propaganda for ISIL. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, so part one, chapter one, basically is all about that. So it plays out kind of like a prologue chapter. And in a way that the book tells you, run it as if the players are recording all this because they're some of the team members do have video cameras and they're supposed to record it. They're told by ISIL, record everything. So later on in later chapters, when Delta Green proper gets involved, they find this video. So everything that the players do during this prologue is going to be presented to their agents once they actually begin the campaign as Delta Green agents, which is an interesting way to handle things. And I think it adds a, a layer of complexity and intrigue. And, and also it adds a lot of agency for the players because what they do as these ISO fighters is going to affect how things play out later on, which is really, really an interesting way to handle things. But um, anyway, so back to back to the scenario. So the players then take on the role as ISIL 
me- uh, members, and they're actually not like military members of ISIL. They're younger guys in their 20s who are hired by ISIL to document uh the destruction of some of these idols that they find in this guy's house and use it as propaganda, like you said, for for people who are thinking of going against the rules of ISIL. So these guys are supposed to go in, take the infidels uh, as prisoners and take them back to ISIL for punishment and meanwhile document everything they find in the house and destroy some of the stuff on video. Yeah, the, the book recommends that if you have less than six players to prioritize uh, the three videographers as it, as the cast of characters that the players play because they are the most important characters as far as this prologue goes in terms of ramifications for the rest of the, the campaign. I think some handlers might have issue with this opening prologue because I think many handlers might see this as a railroad I think that's a fair criticism because it really kind of is a railroad. Your age, the player characters in this portion, of, they're doomed, right? From from the very get go, they're they're doomed. They're like the, their whole piece is to is to die. To give kind of a brief summary of kind of the idea of what's supposed to go on is that they're supposed to go into Tariq's house. They do some investigation, some some romping around, destroying his stuff and whatnot. And then they're supposed to go down into the ground floor where they find, um, you know, they eventually find this vault where the throne of war is being stored and they're supposed to break it. And then that kicks off the events proper of the, of the campaign. And we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But, but that's really all that happens is that they basically go in the house, they, they destroy the artifact, and then that's it. Some handlers might not see the point of running that. I think that it can also kind of interfere with a lot of how you plan this campaign out. I could see a handler wanting to kind of summarize what goes on so that they can kind of get to the meat of the operation itself. Like you said, it is cool that the players can have such a large impact on the campaign without even playing their own main characters. But that comes, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It comes with ramifications as well for the handler. And some handlers might just elect to, you know, kind of detail what goes on briefly and then move on into the campaign proper. Yeah, um, the the book tells the handler to keep a lot of things secret from the players, especially in this part. But I think, I think you're right. I think maybe handlers will read this the wrong way, especially inexperienced handlers may may not realize the point of this. The real point of this prologue is the players have a chance to gather information for their actual agents. So everything that they do in this scenario, everything that happens is being recorded on video. And this is then what their agents get to see and experience. So it is important, but it's not so important because like you said, they're doomed, right? So the end of this first part is already set in stone, sort of. It's what happens in the middle that's important, and I think the the book doesn't make that clear enough. A newer agent or a newer handler may not realize that and and think exactly that. Oh, what's the point of this? Couldn't I just summarize it for people? But no, uh, because the players are moving in as these characters and they're finding stuff, and there are events that are occurring. There are people that they're going to interview in the household, and 
events that are going to unfold based on what the players do regarding that information that is going to be important information later for their agents to investigate these tips and, and things that they learn from watching the video. So that is really the main point of it. And it is definitely easy to miss and not realize why they're doing this. I think it's great if handled properly. I think this prologue is fantastic. But I also think, I don't think that keeping things hidden from the players is the right way to go about it. I think you want the players to to be part of the storytelling here. So you want to make it clear that, yes, some of you may disagree with me, but I think it's fine to tell them these are not going to be the agents you're going to play in this campaign. These are ISO fighters. These are not really good guys, right? So for me, it's okay to tell them that this is going to be the creation of a video that your agents are going to watch. You know, If they know that, then and you tell them what you do, everything that you do is important because that's information that your agent is going to have later on in order to handle running this campaign or running this operation. I think they're more likely to play along without, you know, just being thrown into these characters that they didn't create and being like, why am I doing this? So, so I think, I think being open and honest initially and, and have them be partners with you in the storytelling so that later on when the actual campaign starts, everyone is on the same page about what exactly the reasons for all this was. Yeah. I, I think you make a really good point there, face that it is important to to go through the motions of this you know while i i do think it is certainly possible that you could sort of summarize what the players see you know you could as the handler pick and choose what you think is important but i, I think that does uh, remove a lot of the agency that the players have to find the information for themselves and you make a really good point in that if you're just upfront and honest that you know this is essentially a reconnaissance mission for your agents, you know, and, and what you find out can be vastly important to your agents later on, then like you said, the, the players are much more likely to play to play along, so to speak. Because I think the pitfall that a, a newer handler might have is that they, they try to kind of keep things under wraps like the book suggests, um, especially with this briefing. I don't, I didn't really understand why they felt the need to kind of detail this briefing and like keep it secret, but they're all the same. It's like, what's the point? But anyway, yeah, that that's no, yeah, there's no point to keeping that secret. I I, <laughs> yeah. I, I put in my notes that you should just work that into your introduction of the prologue. Like this is what you yeah. know. And what, what Nate is talking about, there's, there's a handout that you're supposed to give the players that briefs them on their mission as the ISIL agent. Um, but it's the same sheet that you give to everyone, but the scenario tells you, to hand it to them in secret and tell them to read it in secret and not share the information with anyone else, which is pointless because they're all getting the exact same <laughs> briefing. So it just creates an unnecessary sense of distrust that, again, these are not the characters, and the players are, are going to know these are not their characters that they're going to play in this campaign for the entirety of the campaign. So there's no reason to be keeping these secrets at all. It's, <laughs> it's like a, yeah, look, I, I get it. It's, it's probably more of a tone thing, right? Like Delta green is meant to be this sort of like conspiratorial, like game where you can't really trust anyone. But I, I think as far as the table goes, that doesn't really work out. I think you can, I think you can get that feeling in other ways that feel more organic whereas this mission briefing is 
it's a mission briefing. Like, just give it to your players. Let let them, again, don't be secretive with this part. Uh, my recommendation, our recommendation, just run it and get the players to be your partner in telling this first part of the story. Then later on, then when you're running them as Delta Green agents, then go ahead and just keep things secret and all that stuff and do exactly how you normally would run a Delta Green operation. But this one, have them be part of it and, and let them know that a lot of the things they do are going to affect what their agents can learn and what their agents, what information and, and clues they're going to be able to start off with in, in the beginning of the campaign. And we mentioned briefly uh, that, that they were doomed. I kind of teased that, well, mostly uh, there is a way for some of the, the player characters to get out alive. And I think that's really cool. If the, if the players are able to have at least one of them survive, it can create an element of like your Delta Green agents later on when they're watching the video, they say, wait a minute, who's that guy? We need to find out who that guy is uh, and track him down because he has information that we need and he survived and saw this whole thing happen. So we're going to need to talk to that guy, right? There's also an NPC that might survive, uh, the the girl that's being taken care of by Majid, who's the servant of Tariq. I know there's a lot of names that people are, are going to be like, what is he saying? But... Um, there's three three residents in the house, and of the three, one of them is a younger girl. There is a chance that she survives this thing. And again, if she does, that's another possibility for the agents later on to be like, we need to talk to her. Who is she? And and they won't know just from seeing her in the video because her face is covered up. She's wearing a full-on niqab, and they're not going to know. So they're going to need to go into the house and investigate who were the residents of the house. Who is this girl? and then track her down that way. So there are definitely some really interesting things that can come out of this. It could be everybody dies and the agents are kind of like, okay, we have less information to go on. Or it could be that the NPC survives, or it could be that several player characters survive and somehow get away. And there are tips in the chapter that tell you what happens if the if some players get away and all that. So And how they can get away. So it, it does create a little bit of variance. It's not just like, a full-on railroad, there are ways to make things more interesting for your characters later on. And I also like the idea of potentially adding other MacGuffins and things that the players could potentially find for future operations or previous operations. You know, perhaps their agents are looking for some other thing and they just kind of happen to to see it in Rassam's house or something like that. Or, or some other MacGuffin is found in the house and that leads to some other other operations in the future which i i think is a cool possibility as well yeah this this campaign it can be run in so many different ways it, it's actually fairly open uh with how it can be run like we were saying earlier you can have agents in an office as well as a set of agents in the field because they're two completely different types of agents right and if, you, if you're playing the campaign that way, you could have the agents in the office and then several different groups of agents in the field in Mosul in that area. And they could be, like you said, running into different scenarios that are spawned by the discovery of some of these MacGuffins. Mm-hmm. And, and your players could take on the roles of different agents, right? Like from, from session to session, you could have one player, you know, your players, one session, they take on the role of the intelligence team. But then the next session, you know, the intelligence team sends out the field guys and then the field guys go out and they they do an mission, you know, and you can kind of do this kind of back and forth where 
you do some recon, you do some action, you do some recon, you do some action, or you could, you know, you could dial it however you wish, right? You could go all in on one aspect. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff to talk about once we get to those other chapters. So we don't want to get too deep into, like, uh, the actual Delta Green agents and and the rest of the campaign. But this this beginning part is fairly straightforward, like you said, almost railroady. The only thing to be careful with is newer handlers are definitely going to have to be a little bit more careful and, and get a better understanding of what the reasoning behind this scenario, this first prologue is all about and mm-hmm. the reasoning for it. Yeah, I, I think that running this prologue really requires you to read the whole book and to understand why why all of this is important because like we've been saying it, it can feel like it it is meaningless we've touched on it several times but i'll reiterate again and again i think the campaign as a whole is an advanced campaign that requires a very experienced handler in order to run it not necessarily experienced players but the handler definitely should be a little bit more experienced with running games for delta green and understanding the intricacies of Delta Green in order to fully run this in a way that's satisfying for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Delta Green to me is a very meta game in a way. I, I think that that Del- Delta Green works at its best when when the players really go in on the investigation sort of government conspiracy angle of Delta Green because otherwise you kind of end up just kind of hopping from event to event and it feels disconnected. Whereas if, if you really take the time to read through the whole book and understand exactly what's happening, you can much better intertwine all of those events together because Delta Green's agents are much more frail. The game is much more about the overall storyline than it is about the player's developments. That's going to do it for the first part of our review. In part two, we're going to go into the campaign beginning proper with Operation Bone Box. So we hope that you stay tuned for our future reviews into Iconoclast, where we delve into the mystery proper of this campaign. All right. Until next time, then. I've been your host, Nate, lost in time and space and joined with me today. Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn.